Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking again about the Kingdom of God, and we're going to be doing it by looking at John. We finished Matthew. Most of those recordings are up as we went through Matthew. They're up there with our study pages at preparingyou.com, so if you want to go back and review Matthew, that's all available. We're going to do the same thing here with John and go through that gospel. It's much different than the Gospel of Matthew. It's written different. Uh, most of the Gospels are kind of have Mark as a template of the the Gospels. Matthew uh, adds a little bit here and there, and and Luke adds a little bit here and there. And I I've recently heard a theologian, or at least a uh, doctor of uh, religious studies, who just retired this last year. Good thing too, because. He doesn't know what he's talking about, but he he was complaining that Mark, or trying to prove something, because Mark didn't mention some of the things that Matthew mentioned, or didn't mention some of the things that uh, that uh, we see in Luke, and and certainly didn't mention a lot of things that we see in John. Uh, that doesn't that doesn't prove anything. You know, writing the Gospel of Mark was a huge project in those days. Passing it around as a single manuscript was a big deal. Uh, You didn't have, uh, you couldn't put it all on a USB drive. It had to be handwritten out in paper, made specially for it, and passed down over hundreds of years in travel and, and difficult situations. So, Originally, the, what we probably had was not specific gospel stories, but what they call the Q gospels, which are just really quotations, bits and pieces, little little snippets that could be put on a small single piece of paper and carried by somebody to another place, or written down and kept in that place when somebody came and visited, and. Uh, that that's what people had as scripture for the most part. You know, the printing press wouldn't be invented for for centuries, and that made books easily available, or at least more available as, as time went on. And now, now we can put everything on the internet. All our books are on the internet. You can just download them on your phone, for gosh sakes. Now we may not always be able to do that. Technology can come and go <laughs> with societies. And uh, we see that in ancient societies even, where they they installed plumbing and uh, had uh, aqueducts moving water over miles and miles and over valleys and mountains. And, and then everybody lost those skills. And we see ancient skills uh, in metallurgy and, and um, even in medicines that we don't have anymore that we've lost. I mean, nobody knows how the pyramids were built. Uh, and yet we, we can go down in South America and we can go all over and we see these huge, gigantic stone monuments that are, are carved and the stones are fitted together and uh, 
Nobody knows how did they do that. Some cases they had to move those stones all the way across a valley and up on a mountain. And they're gigantic, weighing tons and tons. And nobody knows how they did it. Now, there are amazing ways to do that. And there are people who've gone out and moved pretty big stones around in their backyard and by themselves set them upright. But still, some of these projects are almost overwhelming for us to even imagine how they did it. And those things are still standing. Now there's all kinds of theories about that. But the point is, is whatever they did, we don't know how they did it. And they don't know how they did it. The people who live in that area can't do the same things again. So the fact that you learn information and knowledge, you you can lose that knowledge completely. They can go out of your society and out of, out of your community and out of your nation and you don't know how to do the things that originally built your community or nation. And that is a process of moving from the light to the darkness. where to, From the knowing to the not knowing. And those are real events we see throughout history. Everybody wants you to think that history is just, you know, one society, we learn a little bit more, and and then the next society learns a little bit more, and there's this slowly natural progression. But if you study history, we know that, well, that doesn't always seem to be the case. We seem to forget from time to time. And uh, there's an interesting process uh, that uh, has been studied recently. I shared... uh, a video with our our minister group. So if you're in in the network of ministries, which is basically home churches gathering together in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, like we see Mark telling us to do in the in the Gospel of Mark, and we certainly see evidence of that. And even if you don't see it clearly in all of the Gospels, synagogues back in those days was ten families. That's what they were historically. We just knew that. They all knew that at the time. So they knew that a congregation, a home congregation, we call it home because they they meet in small groups, was ten, ten families. And they networked together. And they've been doing that since the days of Moses. And in truth, you can go back in history and find it as the most common form of free government throughout the history of mankind. The idea of gathering together in groups of 10,000, 20,000 and avoiding the groups of tens, hundreds and thousands, that concept is an aberration in our history. Over the long history of man, it's very clear that people gathered in small groups and those small groups link themselves together by some bonding elements of society. Maybe they they had distant relations within clans or or whatever, but usually what often brought them together is disaster, an invasion of of five hundred people, uh, you know, or a thousand people coming into their community and trying to take over, and this would unite everybody against this common foe. Maybe it was a famine. Maybe they had to move from the place or, or climate change. We know 
Many times there was climate change throughout history where people in farther northern climates migrated to the south because the winters were so severe they could barely grow any kind of crops during the summertime. Game became more scarce. And they had to move south to look for new game, new sources of food. And droughts, that can cause migration of people. And that's that's climate change. Climate's always changing. And then it would change back and people would move north again. <laughs> and that hunting would come back. And so all these things would shift society and move society around. But the danger of invasion or, or fires or other things would cause people to come together and unite. Well, sometimes you don't have time to do all that coming together. So Abraham and Moses showed the people how to bind themselves together with strong bonds of society that don't easily break in hard times. And those were the social bonds that came about through systems of charity. Where you had a, a basically your welfare system of society, your, your, your system of religion. Religion was how you took care of the needy of society. That was still the definition 200 years ago. And if you don't know that, if you think religion is just what you think about God. What you, how you interpret scripture. That's your religion. That's not what religion was. I heard just this morning a home church group talking about Jesus didn't start a religion. Well, in the sense that most people think of religion today, maybe not. But he did, according to the definition of pure religion... He appointed apostles who were already organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, which is why you had 12 apostles and 120 in the upper room. And, and these, these people came out and formed a daily ministration that took care of the social welfare needs of the people because anybody who got the baptism of Christ was kicked out of the social welfare system of Herod and the Pharisees. They were put out of that system. That's what it tells us in John. It doesn't explain that in detail in other places, but we know there was animosity. Because the Pharisees were doing something different than what Christ was doing. The religion of the Pharisees was had become public religion. And what Jesus was doing is taking them back to pure religion. Taking care of the needy through faith, hope, and charity. Public religion is when you do it through men who exercise authority. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke make that very clear. That Jesus was in opposition to systems of government. That exercise authority one over the other. To take care of the needy of their society. And in John we'll see. Says the exact same thing. Except for he uses different words. We see different words and different phrases. In John that we don't see in the other gospels. 
they seem to, it, it seems to be completely written from a different point of view. It has more quotes in the Gospel of John that were based on eyewitness accounts. And so we're going to look a little bit at, at this and some of the uh, background around the idea of the what we call the Gospel of John. It doesn't actually say in the earliest text, it doesn't say this is the Gospel according to John. It, it talks about the beloved disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved is the source of this fourth gospel. And there were been lots of debates over centuries as to was that really John? Was it not? We have the epistles of John and we have the book of Revelation which is supposedly written by John. But there's all kinds of debate about that. And I don't think any of those debates are necessarily important to our faith. Because our faith should be guided by the Holy Spirit, by the Comforter. Not by our intellectual interpretation of the words. And we're going to see that there are a couple words in the Greek language that are translated word. And if you don't know which one is which when you're reading the Bible you may become a little bit confused. If you don't know the history and background of these Greek words that we read in the text, like logos, we we may not really be understanding what the depth of understanding that we need to understand the gospel. But even if I teach you all those things, I teach you Greek and Hebrew and, and you learn all those different languages and you learn all the history you still may not see it. Because we are to learn this based on this idea of the Holy Spirit revealing Himself in our hearts and our mind. That That is the covenant. That God will write upon your hearts and upon your minds. and And you will know Him because... He is revealing himself to you. You know, some people were talking about the uh, Gnostic nature of the Gospel of John. And uh, because it came from the Johannian society, and they say that this was ripe with Gnosticism. But Gnosticism at least as we know it today, wasn't even really beginning to reveal itself as uh, as Gnostics until the end of the second century and into the third century. It was still forming what people nowadays, looking back in history, define as Gnostic beliefs. And you can go back and read what they say are Gnostic writings, but... When you're reading them, you're often interpreting them based upon your existing beliefs. There are a lot of different ways to say the same thing. And if you miss some of the key elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you read these other ancient texts, you may start reading into them meaning that they did not intend. If you're going to study ancient scriptures, you have to come at it with an open mind and try to understand what that individual was trying to tell you when they wrote this down. 
and not go off of the opinions of of these other scholars because the scholars don't all agree. There's debates, debates like who wrote John, and and, and this has been going on for a long time. And, and we can we can track when the consensus began to determine the final understanding of what we now are told is true, which may or may not be true. But that's where the logos comes in. Because that word logos in the Greek, which we translate into word, as we'll see as we begin to go right away into the first chapter, the definition of that word logos really means the truth. It means right reason. It, it has to do with what is actually the case in reality. Not merely my opinion, your opinion, some theologian's opinion. But it's it's that thing that is really true. It's not hidden. It's right before us, but we don't always see it because our vision of reality around us is not always clear. Because it's dependent upon our knowledge. And that's been a problem since the garden. Is that we began to eat of the tree of knowledge as a source. And we began to interpret what we see. And sometimes we're right. And sometimes we're not. And how do we know? And see, that's the key is the tree of life will tell us what the truth is. But then how do we know we're eating of the tree of life? Are we willing to see the truth, the whole truth? And nothing but the truth. The Logos, that's what the Logos is. The Logos is this right reason, sometimes defined as divine will. It's it's the will of God, the word of God. That's what the Logos is supposed to be. Now, because there's a million or a billion opinions as to what the Logos is, all those opinions are not right. But whatever it is, that is what is right. It's up to us to find that out. And the way we're supposed to find out, to know God, is that he will write his laws upon our hearts and upon our minds. Still, men will write scriptures Men will write books. Of the making of books, there is no end. And those books may talk about the Logos, the truth, the way, and the life. But they, they're they talking about it. And you will interpret what they're saying. And no matter how right they are, you can get it all wrong. So as we go through the Gospel of John and we look at all these different aspects and the different phraseology and we we bring up certain points about the gospel of John you may need the humblest of hearts to examine the truth of what you are hearing or what you are thinking about because ultimately that's what we want to lead you to we don't want to lead you to a new religious dialogue or etiology We want to lead you to Christ. But what draws you near Christ is your willingness to sacrifice what you already thought was true that might not be so. So, the fundamental purpose of the gospel seems to convince the people that Jesus is the Messiah. 
but is also a record to remind and strengthen the faith of those who already know that Jesus is the Messiah of the kingdom, the kingdom of God at hand. Because they faced many challenges because at times they were persecuted for their faith. But what did their faith look like? And this is why people have trouble with the Gnosticism uh, aspect. I mean, there's a lot of things that they have trouble with in reading uh, the Gospel of John, but that was one of the critics, is that it would lend itself to the Gnostic philosophies and ideologies. But of course, most of what we see as Gnostic ideology today has been created by people reading ancient texts of people they did not know and coming to conclusion that they thought there was a secret knowledge that if you studied that secret knowledge, you would know. And of course, that's what everybody does. That's why they join religions and, and uh, denominations. This denomination knows the truth about the Sabbath or about the divinity or the trinity or the whatever it is. But these are all ideas that we have and we interpret and some of them may be right and some of them may be skewed and wrong. But knowing God is not knowing information. And so the secret knowledge of knowing God is not knowing more information. It's not secret. The light has always been there. But people choose to live in darkness. They choose to deny some truth that Christ shared with us in the parables, in his teachings. Something about them they don't want to see. This is why people have such a problem with Paul. Is that, you know, and this particular guy, his name was James Tabor. And I actually started a little page at preparing you, talking a little bit about him. It's not in depth or anything. But he had certain ideas about the gospel, and some of them are interesting. But the more I explored into his conclusions, I'm saying, oh my gosh, he's leaving stuff out. He thinks that the, that the epistle of James contradicts Paul. And I know why people think that. It's because they take Paul, some of the things, many things that Paul wrote, very prolific. They take some of the things that Paul wrote out of the context of Paul. Out of the context of the other things that Paul wrote. And we see this with the gospel. You know, they'll quote this and this and this in the gospel. You know, like being born again. Do they read that whole chapter? Do they read how you know you're not born again? That would be very important to read that <laughs> so that you're not deluded under some strong delusion that you're born again and you're not born again. Well, you want to read those to get the whole message. You can't take little bits and pieces out. It all has to fit together. And James fits together well with Paul if you read all of Paul. But we're not going to go through that today. We're going to go through John. And we're going to start that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom after a brief break. So be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. And so we're going to start right away and start going through uh, John and see if we can't figure out uh, what this gospel is all about. And uh, we're we're going to look at a lot of different words from time to time. 
And then we're going to come back as we see those words used in the context of the gospel as well as in the in the context of the time in which the gospel took place. So what were when Jesus was giving his sermons and he's talking to the people, he's going to use certain phrases and certain words when he talks to them and they're going to know exactly what he's talking about. Because he's using terms of the times. If we over the last several centuries have forgotten what some of those words mean or somebody failed to tell us or write it down in our school books or in the footnotes of the scriptures that we do read or even maybe centuries before failed to understand when they were translating the Bible, that can open a door to mislead us. Ultimately, the only way you're going to know what is true is not from the knowledge that you accumulate, the information that you accumulate, although there's nothing wrong with information and knowledge. The tree of knowledge was put into the garden for a purpose. But if you want to know the truth, you need to eat of the tree of life. You need to eat of that revelation. And on... uh, in preparing you actually just changed it during the break uh i just added to a sentence that i already had there the idea of wisdom in the old testament we see wisdom used 150 times it's it's a particular word that is repeated over and over again and and it actually comes from a word that's used also hundreds of times that means to be wise and it's used in a lot of different senses and contexts but the Hebrew scholars of ancient times, the, the, the Jewish writers of ancient times, talked a great deal about this wisdom. And it has been correlated with the idea of logos, which we're going to see here right away in the very first verse of the first chapter. So this idea about wisdom or the logos are connected somehow throughout history. Not always meaning exactly the same thing, because people use it in different contexts. And so that's why context is so important. But it means more than just a word. Or more than just being smart. So this uh, wisdom or the logos r- reached back to the creation when God separated the light from the darkness. And called it good. Light is is something... It is something that is positive, that existence, that can shine in, into the darkness, so the darkness isn't dark anymore, but the darkness cannot shine into the light. They're not opposing forces. One is the absence of the other. So, the absence of wisdom is not wisdom. <laughs> it's darkness. It's, it's not knowing. It's not a secret. It's just, if you avoid the light, you will live in darkness. The same as water and dryness. Dryness is just, dry land is land absence of water. And knowledge may be something that we can say, you know, I have a diploma, I have a degree, I have all this knowledge. But you may have no revelation. And revelation is the Holy Spirit. It is the light. It is the life. 
And Christ, of course, is that spirit, or the representation of that spirit in the Gospels. So, if we go to this first Gospel of John, we read right away, almost as if they're tapping into the very beginning of Genesis. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And of course that word there that we see translated uh, into word is that word logos. It's not the Hebrew or, or the Greek word rima which also means word. It, it's the Greek word logos. So it's not just a word. It means something way more than a word. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now that almost seems to be redundant in that verse. It goes on to say in verse 3, All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So all things come from this original Logos, this unmoved mover from which all things came. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So again, this idea of light shining, and or you could also use the metaphor of breath, because God breathed into Adam. And he received something additional, something in motion. The breath of God. The spirit of God. Jesus comes out of the tomb. Comes sees his apostles. He comes up to them without saying anything. He breathes on them. And says receive the Holy Spirit. So something is being expressed by these events. By these words. And the words are inadequate to express to you. Reading those statements there doesn't mean you have received the Logos or the Spirit of God. You've read words on a page. You know, and, and we can go, you know, uh, in Revelation, we, we see this uh, use of the word beginning. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. So that's that's first chapter of Revelation, verse eight. So, but we could also go back to Genesis and see in the beginning. So, again, this word logos, which appears, I think, over three hundred times in the Bible. You know, and it comes from. You know, other words, uh, but it's, it has a whole history in philosophies and religions and, and Greek thought and in Hebrew thought. So the idea that it's just, you know, it's a difficult word to understand, but it's not understanding the word that is as important as understanding what it has to do with the gospel of Jesus, who was the Messiah. Like I said, one of the chief 
purposes of the Gospel of John is to verify that Jesus was the Messiah. And that means the anointed. And it doesn't mean just anointed by this uh, woman who comes up and anoints him with oil. Which was a, a very important event and will be very important to understand, to put all the pieces together. But of course, we're putting together information and knowledge for somewhat of the same purpose that the Gospel of John was written, to help people with their faith. Because they were going to face heavy trials. And, and you know, that was one of the first requests of Jesus when they asked, somebody asked Jesus to heal their son. And he asked them, did they believe? And a lot of people would tell me they believe. But this man added something extra. He says, but help me with my unbelief. Because their belief is a degree. You can't even believe except as a gift from God. You can think something is true. That's you. But to really believe as the word was used at that time, especially amongst the Christians, you you can't believe without God. Somebody just wrote this morning, I saw a message from them that God gives us the right to choose to listen to Satan or not. Of course, it gives us the right to reject the ways of Satan, is what he was saying. I, I can't remember the exact quote, but uh, basically that was it, that God gives us this right to choose to reject the ways of Satan, not follow Satan. But God also gives us the power to not follow Satan because Satan can deceive us. He can appear as an angel of light. Whatever Satan is, the adversary. And the adversary comes in many forms. And it even tells us that in the Bible. You know, just as you don't know when you're entertaining angels, you don't know when you're entertaining fallen angels. They they may be doctors of theology <laughs> in your universities telling you stuff. It sounds true, but isn't. And that was one of the things that, you know, I'm not I'm not calling James Tabor Satan, but he certainly has at times an adversary to what I see in the Gospels. And I noticed that when he was talking about James and then he would talk about other of the Gospels, you know, saying that, Mark doesn't include this and and that and and um, but other gospels add these things in like they're not true because Mark didn't say them so now they're not true. Well, that's not necessarily a proof. But I, what I noticed was that he never mentioned when he was trying to prove that some of the things that were added in by Matthew were not mentioned by Mark or in any of the other Gospels. And and he was, in another uh, lecture, he was saying that the, the the epistle of James was contradicting Paul because James didn't say some of the things that Paul said, although Paul clearly said many of the things that James said. If you read all of Paul, but he didn't mention those quotes. 
from Paul. But what he also didn't mention was the Gospel of James. Because there is a Gospel of James around. It's not a part of the original Bible that was handed down to us by Eusebius, who was paid by Constantine to put these books together. But it doesn't mean that it's not an authentic book of James. There's good reason to believe that James did write it. Or at least the original copy. We don't have originals. We have hand-me-downs. People rewrote them. Because the Gospel of James mentions all kinds of things that you don't find in Mark. But uh, that's why we have four Gospels now in the Bible. We also have lots of other written, you know, Gospel of James and the Gospel of Philip and the Gospel of Nicodemus. They all exist. And they may or may not be 100% accurate. There's no reason to say that they're not inspired. We have no proof that they're not inspired. But they're historical records coming from those ancient times written by somebody. But ultimately, this is why we have to depend upon the Holy Spirit to tell us what all this stuff means. But there are four Gospels in this Bible that we are now going through. I actually could go through some of the other Apocrypha, but let's get to the the one Bible we have first. (laughs) We can go through the Apocrypha. But the reason you have those four is that they are four witnesses, each talking about many of the same events from their point of view. And they overlap. And like the trial of Jesus, like we talked about in Matthew, you don't get a full picture. You certainly don't get a full picture from Mark unless you read also John and Luke. But you can get a full picture of Christ without studying the Bible through revelation of the Holy Spirit. I recommend reading the Bible, but that is not should not be the source of your faith. You should be able to have their faith based upon the leading of the Holy Spirit, which is the light that has that Christ has given us. He came into the world, but he says, I will send to you a comforter, which is the Holy Spirit. So ultimately, that's what we need. So in that verse 4 again, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And that light of men is that revelation that comes to men when we walk with God. And something has caused us to not walk with God, to flee the garden. It was because we decided to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But not just that. When we were confronted with that error, the arrogance of that error, we did not accept responsibility. We blamed it on the woman and upon God who gave us the woman. And still today, somebody was asking me to be on a X space, audio space where they they can have lots of people in a conference. And I, I was thinking about doing it on Friday, but I couldn't figure out how to get on. But if they arrange it, I'll do it and, and talk to these people. 
Because I see one of their big problems is they're trying to blame all the problems of the world on somebody, what somebody else is doing. You're never going to find the solution that way. You have to see what you are failing to do, or maybe what you are doing, that is setting you up for failure in this world today, which is what's going on. Why, Why you see all the commotion in the world today is because we do not fully understand the gospel. We are not letting the Holy Spirit write in upon our hearts and our minds. We, we, there, there are somebody writing upon our hearts and our minds, but we're not getting the results that we should get if it was truly the light of God writing on our hearts and our minds. And so verse 5 goes on and says, And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Because the Darkness can't receive the light. It's not darkness anymore if it receives the light. It rejects seeing the light. That word comprehended. Uh, you know, it, it, it actually comes from a couple of different words, but, uh, it actually has to do with possess. Darkness cannot possess the light. It, it has to do with apprehend, attain. Darkness can't receive the light. It, it, its identity of being darkness ceases to exist. Uh, it has to do with laying hold of something, you know, and uh, that's darkness can't receive it. And you won't be able to receive the light if you love the darkness. You have to reject the darkness. You have to be willing to see the truth. In verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. Now, is it actually through John might believe or through the light might believe? Well, you can look at the syntax of that sentence in the Greek and you may think that he's actually... This gospel is actually telling us that John is bearing witness of the light so that all men through that light might believe. That makes more sense to me. But of course, John is bringing that light. He, just like, you know, I talk about people, you know, they, should I go here and should I go there? People ask me those questions. I says, I don't know. What does the Holy Spirit tell you? Well, I, I I know that church doesn't believe the truth. So why should I go to that church? Well, why do you think you should? Why, what is drawing you to go to that church or to that meeting or into that courtroom or wherever it is that you're going or to a political gathering? Maybe you're supposed to bring the light because we're all vessels of that light. Some of us reject the light and then we become... Darkened vessels. Sour grapes, <laughs> so to speak. But we are all to be vessels of that light. And maybe God wants you to bring that light into the room. You don't have any power over that light. You don't have any control over it. But you may be bringing it literally into the room. John was doing that. Now, I read something. I don't know if it's true. I haven't checked it out. You read these things. Uh, but I think... 
in the Gospel of John, they never refer to John as John the Baptist. They just refer to him as John. Of course, this isn't the author. This is whose name was John. And the same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now, Jesus was that light, made flesh, but and that light dwelt among us. But we need that light dwelling in us. If that light is not dwelling in us, we can't really come in the name of Jesus, the Messiah. So we have to make room in our hearts for that light. In order to receive that light, we have to let go of the comfort of the darkness, the comfort of ignorance, and and see the the wholeness of that light. John was not that light, but he was to bear witness of that light. So now we can go back to that verse 7 and say, well, through him, they might believe because they're, they're equating in the verse that light. We don't know it yet. They haven't stated it yet that Jesus will be that light. But the, the light, the logos existed before. The right reason existed before. And Jesus was the only evidence we have of that light, of that Logos being made flesh. We see some of that light in many other prophets who said many of the same things that Jesus said. We know Moses and Jesus were in agreement. Abraham was leading to the way of Moses. But Jesus was that light. He was that Messiah, that anointed, that Redeemer. But what that means, we may have written in and filled in the gaps and created a ideology of religion, which I can't tell you not to do that. But if that ideology of religion is getting in the way of the exercise of pure religion and actually leading you to exercise authority one over the other or go ways that Christ said not to go, then I would recommend you let go of that belief. And that's one of the things that we're going to say as we go through John is where does it is God, where is John taking us? Verse 9, that was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. So, when they say world there, and this is again one of those places where they have, you know, we have four or five different words 
in the in the Greek text that can be translated world, and they all mean something different. Which one is he using? Because John uses this all the time. And it's one of the great deceptions. There's a couple of words that have been redefined by modern religion. One of them is religion. Religion is, you look it up, you Google it, it's what you think about God. That's religion. It's some sort of denomination that you joined, you have a membership with. That's your religion. You're a Baptist, you're a Methodist, you're a Jehovah Witness, you're a Catholic, you're a Christian, you're a Buddhist, you're a Satanist. Those are all religions, according to the modern definition of religion. But just 200 years ago, religion was how you took care of the needy of your society. It was your pious performance of your duty to God and your fellow man. That duty to your God and your fellow man was to love your fellow man as yourself. To take care of him. To provide for him. That was what religion was. It isn't that way in the minds of most people today. But it was at the time the Gospel of John was written. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, in John, we're seeing this idea of the light coming into the world, but the world knew him not. And we see this word world, which actually is a word that means, according to the concordance, constitutional order or system of government. That's what they're talking about. Did Jesus create the government of the world at that time? Well, he first appears in Judea, and there was a government in Judea. And it was dependent upon the originator of that government, who was supposedly Moses. And the, Jesus will eventually talk about the those who sat in the seat of Moses... And, and he would be also talking about taking the kingdom away from those who sat in the seat of Moses and appointing it to another. And, of course, that's all about government. The kingdom of God was at hand. John is going to be saying that. Jesus is saying that. We're supposed to be seeking that kingdom. He's going to take that kingdom away from the Pharisees. He's going to appoint it to new people. And he's going to say, you know, it is my pleasure to appoint unto the little flock a kingdom, a government. So if the word world there means constitutional order or system of government, it would include the kingdom of God. Which, of course, goes back to at least Moses. And in truth goes back to Abraham. Because Moses was a descendant of Abraham. And Abraham was a descendant of Noah, nine generations from Noah, blessed by Melchizedek. Who's Melchizedek? So this is the constitutional order or system of government of God through Abraham, through Moses, through the prophets, and now we're going to see through Jesus. But how are these, Was this? would this also include Rome? Well, Rome was originally a republic. And understood natural law, jus naturale. We still have the Latin phrases of Rome in our modern Black's Dictionary. 
Because it's based on the law of nature. That's how they create governments. And understanding that governments are based on an original system of government that God created, which is called the family. Family has a father and a mother. They are one. They're not, they're not at enmity with one another. They are one flesh. And together they create a family. That is, that is the basic government structure of God. But men come along and they replace the father of the family with the father of the state. Which is why Jesus says, call no man on earth father. I've heard theologians interpreting that, that we're not supposed to call our natural father's father. No, no. He's not talking about our natural fathers. And we'll see this as we go through John. He's talking about, the, you know, Caesar was called Patronus. Which means our father who art in Rome. Patronus of Rome was Caesar, the father of Rome. The senators were all called Patri. They had created a world, a constitutional order and system of government, originally a republic, now moved into an indirect democracy with an imperator, a commander-in-chief at the head of that government. We'll talk about those, you know, the offices of Caesar. They all... When, is it, when Jesus said, call no man on earth father, everybody knew who was called father. Everybody knew they weren't talking, Jesus wasn't talking about their dad. He was talking about the world of Rome. That, that the state had become the father of the people. In order to do that, they had to Assume some of the authority of the natural fathers. And some of the natural fathers had to give up that authority. And, and this, this, it seems a little complicated here, but we'll, we'll take these pieces of the puzzle. But if you don't understand what that word world means in those last verses from 9 through 11, you may be misinterpreting this because you're thinking that he's talking about the planet. And I've seen all the arguments that try to say it. But at that time, that word did not mean planet. It meant constitutional order and system of government. And that's why the concordance defines it that way. So now when we go on to verse 12, what are we going to learn in verse 12? Because verse 11, he said, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. He was rejected by the Pharisees, but he wasn't rejected by all the Jews. All the citizens of Judea, which we can call Jews. Verse 12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name. What power did he give them? We have a word there that says power. He gave, he, he's going to give them power. Well, that power is the Greek word exousia. Which is translated power 69 times, authority 29 times. Right. Twice. Liberty once. Jurisdiction once. Strength once appears 103 times in the Bible. It means power of choice. Liberty 
of doing as one pleases. That's the definition. I'm reading the definition right in the concordance. That's what it means. Well, that's the same word we see in Romans 13. Let every man remain subject to the higher power. The higher power of what? The higher power of choice. The liberty of doing as one pleases. That's what it says. That's the word we see there in verse 12. To them gave he power to become the sons of God. Well, there's a link there on the page at Preparing You where you can go read your article on who's called the Son of God. Jesus was called the Son of God. Who else in the Bible was called the Son of God? Well, in the Bible they don't call him that. But at that time, everybody knew who the Son of God was in Rome. If you went to the city of Rome and you went up to somebody in Rome and you asked them, who's the Son of God? They'd all tell you, well, Caesar. Caesar is the Son of God. It was a title to an office that put him in charge of the religion of Rome. That's what the Son of God was. He was in charge of the religion of Rome. But Jesus is saying he's going to give those who receive him the power, the right to choose to become the sons of God. The power of religion, you know, how you take care of the needy of society, is going to be given to you. Even to them that believe on his name. And then we have to understand what believe on his name means. Verse 13, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God is what he's saying. Not not just the will of man, but the will of God. Well, what's the will of God? Well, divine will... Is the Logos. <laughs> That's the word Logos, right reason, divine will, are synonymous terms throughout history. They have been synonymous terms. So he's saying you can be born of the will of God. That doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want. It's that you, this only happens when you want to do what God wants. And what does God want? He wants you to be fruitful and multiply. He doesn't want you to degenerate as a society. He doesn't want you to degenerate as an individual. He doesn't want you, your DNA to degenerate or become contaminated or become, uh, you know, you become like an animal. He doesn't want that. He wants you to become fruitful and multiply. He wants the glory of God's creation to live in you. He wants His Holy Spirit to live in you. The Holy Spirit that giveth life, that breathes life into man. Verse 14, And the Word, Logos, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, Full of grace and truth. Now that's that verse is full of meaning too. Well, we're getting a lot of meaning already, so we're 
we'll come back to that. And John revisits this idea of what is glory. His glory. God's glory. What is God's glory? Jesus is going to talk about that more. But now, he goes back to, in verse 15, back to John. John bear witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. And he was before me. Well, of course, Jesus was born, you know, uh, after John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist was already in the womb when when Mary came to visit Elizabeth. So he means something more than that. And exactly, you can read all kinds of stuff into this, and you create all kinds of theologies and ideologies, and that's fine, you can think about it, it's great campfire talk, but you don't want it to distract from the basic message of you becoming the sons of God, in charge of, of the religion of God, which is how you take care of the needy of your society. How how you fulfill your duty to God and your fellow man. That's what religion was defined as, like I said, back when they wrote the Constitution. That was the definition of religion. How you take care of the needy. You don't need to take care of your fellow man who's doing fine. You only have to take care of him when he's having problems or trouble. How do you take care of him in a way that strengthens him? Because there's all kinds of ways to take care of the needy of society. Sodom was doing that. But it weakened the poor. So whatever they were doing was not a good idea. It made the poor weaker, not stronger. So I'm throwing out these little bits and pieces as we're going through this. But we want to get all the way through it. And there's a lot of verses in this, so we'll just keep trucking along here. But I'm giving you a little bookmark so that you can kind of start putting, because you're going to have to reread this again and again. If if you've only been taught by the modern churches of today, who I, I believe in many cases have led people away from the way of Jesus. So John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me. For he was before me. And of this fullness have all we received the grace for grace. And grace for grace. What does that mean? How how do we receive grace for grace? Well, how are you forgiven? If you don't forgive, neither are you forgiven. Jesus will tell us this. Make it very clear. So if you want grace, you have to have grace for others. And of course we can study grace. And there's a link on the page so you can go read an article on grace so you can understand what grace is. Which might be a little bit different than what you thought. It has has a meaning. But if you give grace to somebody, you, you make allowances for somebody. So this is one thing. In order to form a congregation of people, you're going to have disagreements about what's in the weeds. <laughs> you know? And so 
you're going to have to have grace. And you're going to have to let them disagree with you on many points. And be willing to have that conversation. You don't abandon your fellow man. You have grace for him so that you may have grace. You forgive others so that you may be forgiven. As you judge, so shall ye be judged. This is all about the logos. The law of nature. Right reason. This is how the universe works. These are the like the laws of physics. The physics of the kingdom. Verse 18. I don't know. Let's go to verse 17. For the law was given by Moses... But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man had seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So, there's another one of those verses that we can turn into a religious doctrine or dogma. The only begotten Son... Of, of God. And, and we seem to be talking about a pre-existence of Jesus. But what's more important to know of the pre-existence of Jesus or extend grace to others? What's more important if to desire to be forgiven or to forgive others? Because you can't be forgiven unless you forgive others. So it's more important that you learn to forgive others. It's more important that you have grace for others instead of creating doctrines and dogmas. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So we don't know God. It's too much for us to know. But Jesus is declaring the nature of God with his doctrine, with what he teaches And so we can read that doctrine and get an idea. But the only way to really know God is not by studying real hard and, you know, to show thyself approved because the word study in that quote, to show thyself approved, is not the normal Greek word for study. It's not translated study any any other place in the Bible. It's, It's the word for diligent. To be diligent in what? Giving grace to others, forgiving others. Caring for others, even loving your enemy. This is the nature of the gospel of Christ. If you want to know God, that's the secret. It's not a secret. It's, it's right out in front of us. But it may seem like secret knowledge <laughs> to those who live in darkness. Who don't want to see it. Because to take care of the needy requires sacrifice. And if one thing Christ came to teach us is how to sacrifice. He was really good at sacrifice. You, if you're going to come in the name of Christ, you're going to come in the name of sacrifice. Verse 19, and this is the record of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he saith, I am not. Are thou the, are 
thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? That we may give an answer to them that sent us. What sayest thou of thyself? He saith, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet. John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. But there standeth one among you, whom you know not. He it is, whose coming after me is preferred before me, says that repeatedly, whose shoes latcheth I am not worthy to unloose, which is the lowest place in the household, the guy who is supposed to take the the master's shoes off and wash his feet. And I'm not even worthy to unloose his shoes, much less wash his feet. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. So they're, they're giving us some information. They're not calling him John the Baptist, which to me suggests that the person writing this had an in, intimate knowledge and, and relationship with John, knew John, wouldn't refer to him as John the Baptist, but referred to him as John. And uh, so he was baptizing. Now there, we have articles on baptism. The The Pharisees were baptizing people over at their temple. They were baptizing people in the laver over at their temple. And they were actually baptizing people all over the Roman Empire. They've been doing this since the days of Herod. Now, Herod's long gone here. But Herod the Great had been sending out ministers from the Pharisees and even Sadducees all over the Roman Empire to baptize people into the kingdom of God. This was a a, a tradition that they had created, a system, part of a system. And when they were baptized, they were given a white stone with a Hebrew name carved on it. And that Hebrew name was it like an identity card that identified them so that wherever they were in the Roman Empire... If there was a Jewish synagogue there that was signed up through the temple, they could show that stone and say who they were and they could receive, you know, if they've been robbed, they could get help. They could receive food. They could receive shelter. And it was a social welfare system set up through the temples. Rome was doing it. Herod was doing it. Herod actually built more than the Temple of Jerusalem. He built the Temple of Roma. For people who didn't like the Jewish symbols and Jewish traditions, he built the Temple of Roma with a a beautiful maiden out in front. But its purpose was the same thing. It was to take care of the social welfare. It provided a table of social welfare that the people could get benefits at 
if they fell on hard times. And, of course, it was based on membership. So you had to have a way of identifying the members. So you had lots of scribes that say, okay, this guy's a member. This guy's a member. He's given this name. He's been baptized. We registered him with this. This is all going to be important if you don't understand the history of what was going on. That system set up by Herod and the Pharisees was a system of sacrifice. When you signed up, you had to pay in. What you paid in was your sacrifice. They called it Corbin. That's just a Hebrew word for sacrifice. And, and the Corbin of the Pharisees was filling the treasuries of the Pharisees, which is why we see that same word Corbin translated treasury in the gospel. It's, it's, sometimes it just appears as Corbin, but sometimes it appears as the word treasury. But it was filled with the sacrifices of the people that were accounted for by the scribes. Because they were now compelled, because you were now a member. You had joined up, you had registered with that system. Now everybody didn't register. Some people weren't in that system. And Jesus had a problem with that system, which we'll see. That he saw that the Corbin of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect. Because the original Corbin was free will offerings and the new Corbin was not. So, this is why they wanted to know why you're baptizing. We're baptizing over here, but you're baptizing over here. And they're going to ask him, like, because he, when he's baptizing, he's preaching the kingdom of God. He's preaching a different government. Oh, the, the, the Pharisees are thinking, we're, I thought we were the kingdom of God. And so there's going to be a conflict there. And we're going to see this conflict in all the Gospels. And we're going to see it in John. Verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And he uses that same word for world. It's not talking planet. It's talking about the sins the constitutional orders and system of government, which there were a lot of governments around. Of course, now he's in Judea. But he's also in the Roman Empire. This is he whom I said, after me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. So he's repeated this. Like I said, he was going to repeat this. So it's repeated already three times. And I knew him not but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Not just Judea, but Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. We'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're in John, in the section about the Lamb of God, that this is the Lamb of God, he's going to be talking about that uh, from time to time, this Lamb of God. And of course, we're supposed to learn the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. And we saw earlier here a reference that Moses was not what Christ was. Christ was more than what Moses was. But of course, we've also seen in, in our Gospel of Matthew that that Jesus is seen with Moses and Moses and Jesus are in agreement. 
And of course, if you really understood Moses, this is another thing that when you, you look at, you know, James Tabor, or I don't want to keep mentioning him, but uh, a lot of the people who think that Paul was preaching something contrary to Christ, or that they did away with everything that existed, you know, like they do away with the law. This is one of the things that people hear Paul saying, doing away with the law. Well, he's not talking about the Ten Commandments, which are the Ten Statements of God, explaining to you how the kingdom of God works, how the law of nature works. Although you may not think that if you look back at the Ten, what you call the Ten Commandments, and you read them with what you've been taught, but we have articles on that to show you what they were actually talking about, because it's... In many of the places, I mean, thou shalt not murder, that's pretty clear. But not committing adultery, most of the adultery mentioned in the Bible is about national adultery. So how do you commit national adultery? <laughs> and of course, uh, in Revelation is talking about a harlot. Well, a harlot gets to be a harlot because somebody's committing adultery with her. So all adultery is not sexual adultery. It's something more. So, understanding the nuances of those words and how they're used in the Ten Statements makes you understand that the law of physics is not done away with. The law of gravity isn't done away with. The the law of nature is not done away with. But the laws of the Pharisees, that was done away with. Because Jesus took the kingdom away from the Pharisees and appointed it to somebody else who was not to exercise authority one over the other, not force the contributions of the people. That's the kingdom of God. You know you're in the kingdom of God if that's the way your government is operating. If your government is operating like the Pharisees set up with the Corbin of the Pharisees where you registered and you had to pay in to take care of the needy of your society then you know that's not the kingdom of God. <laughs> and of course, I had to write a whole book so that you would understand that the United States is not, in the United States Constitution, let's put it this way, the United States Constitution is not a biblical document. It's a, it's a great masterpiece and document. I think, I think the world, and give great grace to the men who wrote it, but it, it was seriously flawed. And you had prophets of the day when it was put into place that told you that it was seriously flawed. And they wrote whole articles about it. You know, the anti-federalist papers warning you. Even the guys that were for the Constitution warned you, this is only for moral people. You know, a virtuous people. It's not for covetous people. Covetous people, you'll end up back in the bondage of Egypt. It'll be worse for you than the bondage of Egypt. You'll owe more than 20% of your labor to the government. If, if, if you're not a virtuous people, if you start doing something contrary to the teachings of Christ, yeah, you, you, you'll curse your children. You'll all become human resources. That would be terrible, wouldn't it? Of course, you could blame it on somebody else. Uh, you go back to the, you know, Adam's tactics. It's not my fault. It's, it's the government you gave me. <laughs> well, you know, you were committing national adultery. <laughs> so the, the Ten Commandments isn't done away with. The understanding of the Ten Commandments has been done away with in the modern times.
so that people, and so that's why we're going through this line by line. And so that you, you get back some of that understanding. But like I said, it's going to be an exercise in humility. It's going to be a challenge. So as we're reading verse 30, this is he whom I said. He's talking about Jesus. Who's to come after, be preferred over him. Verse 31, and I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Israel, that's the place where God prevails. That's not Judea. It's, it's not even a geographical location. It, it's where men contend with God. Jordan Peterson is writing something about that, you know. Those people who, you know, I don't know what he calls it, wrestle with God, contend with God. That's what Israel is. And of course, some of the things that I'm sharing with you are maybe contending what you believe Israel was. Of course, they, Many of the things that Jesus said contended with what the Pharisees believed Israel was. But the Pharisees had it wrong. And unfortunately, modern Christendom has often gone to the Old Testament and gone to the Pharisees and said, what does the Old Testament mean? What do do these Hebrew words mean? You know, we put a concordance at preparing you and... uh, there's so many Hebrew words, just, you know, numbered Hebrew words by strong, that uh, it was a little overwhelming for the software. <laughs> so I broke it, broke it down into sections. But the reality is, it, it's not 8,000 Hebrew words. It, it's not 10,000 Hebrew words. It, it's, it's thousands and thousands beyond that. Because there there's like 8,000 base words but then you add letters that have meaning and you create new words with it but they may still have the same Strong's number sometimes they break it up but uh, yeah Hebrew is a very difficult language in some ways but very different language and very codified language full of metaphors so misunderstanding why we have so much already done we have a whole uh, section on on Exodus and chapters here and there throughout the Old Testament. Some of the early minor prophets, we've done them. So you can see that the message of Moses and Abraham was really the same message of Christ. Christ took it better, but they weren't in disagreement. And if you understand where they agreed at, you'll understand how James agreed with Paul. And Paul agreed with James. They weren't in conflict with one another. But if you miss the whole gospel, then you'll say, well, this guy seems to be disagreeing with that guy. No, 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 no. They're they're in agreement. You're just not in agreement. And I see this with people who want to badmouth Paul. And Paul had his faults. Even Paul admits that. But... If you take Paul out of the context of Paul, you're going to get it wrong. (laughs) Many people have done that. So like I say, here we see he's he's come to baptize with water. But in verse 32, he says, John bear record saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode upon him. And I knew him not. So again, we've got this, I knew him not. 
in verse 33. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. And that baptizing is submersing people in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. This is being born again of the Spirit. And then right away in verse 34, And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Was Which now, claiming that Jesus is the Son of God, is going to immediately put him into conflict with not only... Uh, at that time would have been uh, Augustus Caesar, I think. Or no, Tiberius. Tiberius Caesar, who was also called the Son of God. But it would put him in conflict with anybody who was looking to Caesar for their free bread. Because the Son of God, again, the office of the Son of God in Rome was the head of the religious system that provided the tables of welfare for the Roman people or for the Corinthian people or for the Galatian people or for the people at Ephesus. This is all run through, their welfare system was run through the temple. They ran other things. Almost all the temples were some form of banks. The temple of Mineta was minting money. You know, that that's where we get the word money from the god Mineta. Who had a temple, and they had they had foundries in there. <laughs> they were they were making gold and silver coins. And they would take a portion of the gold that when they made the coin, but that's what they were doing, and that was a that's why it was a sacred job because you had to make those coins uniform, and that's what they were doing. So you know, Caesar would bring gold that he had confiscated from this country or that country, and he would bring it there, and he says, mint me a bunch of coins, I'm going to buy a bunch of stuff. And he would build harbors and roads and fund armies and everything. So that's what the temples were. They were all government buildings. They all had government functions, and one of them was welfare, because it won the vote of the people. It won the support of the people. But Jesus wasn't impressed with the temple that was built by Herod. He certainly wasn't a, I don't think he was impressed by the Temple of Roma either, <laughs> which was also built by Herod. But if you don't know these things, you don't know what was going on. Well, you don't know what the conflict is. You don't know why people were so upset, why, why it could even be considered a crime to be called the Son of God. It, now, there was, at that particular time, private religion was legal. And of course, Jesus' kingdom was not of the world of Rome, which we will see again. We've covered that in Matthew, but we'll also cover that here. But in verse 35, he goes on and says, Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. He's saying, John is saying this to two of his disciples. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed after Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and said unto them, What seek ye? 
they said unto him, Rabbi, meaning teacher. Although some people will interpret that as master, as it says here in the text, because of the idea uh, at that at particular time of King James was being translated, a teacher, an excellent teacher, uh, a, a teacher with a, a serious degree of knowledge was called master because he was a master of a subject or of knowledge, of information. So this is one of those verses that people are thinking that there's a certain element of Gnosticism because, you know, being this teacher, master, having the secret knowledge. But of course the secret knowledge is knowledge of God through the Holy Spirit, which is why he's going to baptize you. So, no, it's not the interpretation of Gnosticism, but it's 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 the basic thing that the New Covenant is that God has to write upon your heart and upon your mind, and he does this through the Spirit. So he says, said unto him, Rabbi, where dwellest thou? So they want to go with him. And he saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day. For it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and said unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. So, John, the Gospel of John is telling you that the word Messiah means the same as the word Christ. They're the same. Messiah is the anointed king. Christ is anointed king. So, verse 42 goes on, And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, That are Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas which is by interpretation a stone. So that's way out of context of what we saw in uh, Matthew. But it could be true because Jesus could be prophesying that you'll eventually be called this stone, Cephas, Peter. In verse 43, the day following Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, follow me. Now, Philip was of Bethsaida, a city of Andrew and Peter. So, they they probably all knew each other. So, Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that, Philip called thee, when thou was under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. 
So we don't know what happened under the fig tree. But somehow this rang a bell with Nathaniel. So again, this is evidence that Jesus seemed to know something about these people. They didn't know how he knew this. And of course, I'll give you a story if we have time for the end of the show. We're almost at the end of the verses here. But uh, Nathaniel was convinced. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Well, what, where did we hear about the angels of God ascending and descending? <laughs> Isn't that way back in the Old Testament where somebody wrestled with an angel and he saw a ladder and angels going and coming? And what is that all about? Well, they don't tell us right there. But you can draw all kinds of ideas in, in your imagination, create all kinds of doctrine about that. But it meant something to Nathaniel. And I hope eventually it means something to you in the same way that it meant it to Nathaniel. Because Jesus is kind of saying, you believe me because I saw thee under the fig tree? That's why you believe us? Oh, no, there's, uh, there's a lot more things. But, also talked about the fact that this, you know, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. And I thought it was interesting also, I'll just throw this out, that according to the text, it appears that Nathaniel said unto him, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? And so we're supposed to believe that there's this town, Nazareth. And for a long time, I've looked at a lot of documents. I'm not convinced that there was a town named Nazareth. That I believe that Jesus was of a polis that could be known as Nazareth or the Nazareans. You know, a system. But it wasn't a geographical location. But it was an Essene system. He was an out of the, the the Nazarene Essenes, which were all over the place. They weren't in one particular village or location. But evidently, Nathaniel has some sort of beef with them. And of course, there was conflict amongst the Essenes. They weren't all the same. And there were probably groups of Nazarene Essenes that did one thing and groups that did another. And the, remember, the Sanhedrin had had a big uh, kerfuffle about who was right and, and large numbers of the Sanhedrin walked out. There was assassinations in the temple when uh, John the Baptist had to flee. And we've talked about that John, you know, went to a cave according to the Gospel of James with Elizabeth and they hid out. And then he was disappeared, but then he shows back up with this, this camel hair robe and a, a leather belt that went around his loins. And if you don't know that that sounds like he's been in Parthia. <laughs> and then you don't know that his family line would make him in the priest line of Parthia. And that Jesus' family line would make him eligible for the kingship of Parthia. And then if you take into consideration that the wise men 
appear to be coming from Parthia, (laughs) that there's a lot more going on than most people get. But really what we want to know what's going on is this Holy Spirit thing and revelation by the Holy Spirit and, you know, greater things than these you shall also see. That's what you're you're going to want to understand. And of course, all the Gospels suggest this spiritual power. And not only are we given choice, but we are given the light by which to make those choices and the power to make those choices. So, you know, going back up where we're looking at uh, this whole Gospel, back there in verse 12, that... But as many as received him, to them gave he power, the power of choice, to become the sons of God. Remember, Jesus is going to say, ye also are gods. And that you're going to have the power to sit in judgment. But are you going to sit in judgment like the Supreme Court or like some sort of, you know, uh, King Solomon, where you can say, well, cut that baby in half and, you know, that you're passing judgment on that way? Or is there another way that that judgment is going to come? Because we need to understand exactly what it is, you know, when uh, uh, Jesus talks about the liberty of the Son of God. And, and, you know, if you go look at the footnotes that I have in the, the sections there uh, on the side panel, uh, you can go down and, and you can read. that Jesus answered in John 10.34, It is not written, is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? Uh, Jesus is saying this to his apostles. Well, now we have to go look up that word gods. Or God. It's Theos. Theon. It means ruling judge. Well, who's the ruling judge of your life? Who can, de- who can decide what you can do and what you can't do? Is it God the Father in heaven or is it men? Have you made gods of men? Have you chosen other men to make choices for you? Well, you're not supposed to do that. I don't, you know, I think that was part of the deal. <laughs> In Acts 19.26 it says, Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods, which are made with hands. Anyway, you can go look up the footnotes on that. And uh, I actually was just thinking I, there's a couple other notes I should put in there. Because Paul talks about God's many. We'll save this for next week. Peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, 
books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.